Welcome back to Digital Fluency, the only podcast where you are guaranteed to get smarter about the digital world or your money back. Digital Fluency is a special podcast series from the good folks at the Studio for Teaching and Learning Innovation. I'm your alarmingly adequate and always charming host, Adam Barger, and I am the instructor for the William & Mary course entitled Digital Fluency, Footprints and Philosophies, which provides the content for this series. Every week, we review what happened in class and discuss ways to apply these ideas to our lives. I am joined, as always, by student producer extraordinaire, Jacob Hall. How are you, Jacob? I'm feeling great. Aced an exam this morning, so uh, the day can only get better. Great to hear. Jacob, I have a question for you. And before I ask you, I want to tell you that this is just between us and our legion of listeners. <laughs> are you ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. The question is, how many friends do you have on social media? Ooh, well, if you were to ask Instagram, I have just over a thousand friends that we like mutually follow each other. Um, but if I were to define friend as someone who I like, interact with on a, on a more regular basis, I'd, I'd put it maybe at two or 300 people that I come in contact with on social media every month or so. Wow. A thousand friends, two to 300 contacts. I am humbled and <laughs> a little embarrassed. Well, you know, there's a lot of people who I was in touch with in high school, uh, at various camps and things that I've been to over the years. I was a transfer student, so I have a lot of friends at my former college. And it sort of adds up. There's a lot of people who I, you know, like to um, catch up with every once in a while. Yeah, that's, uh, that seems reasonable. Um, I'm not on the Facebook uh, or the Instagram uh, or any of those other cool apps. I am on Twitter, and I think I have like 100 friends or followers, I guess they're called on, on, on Twitter. And um, that makes me feel good. But I think 75% of them are, are robots. <laughs> so do you have robot friends? In, I think I have school. some robot friends. My account is public. So sometimes I'll get a follower I don't recognize and I, I don't follow them back unless I know who they are. Um, so, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, well, thanks for being honest with us. Now I have another question. Yeah. Um, and I gather from uh, lurking in your social media feeds and um, talking to you um, that this, this, <laughs> you were lurking this, in my social media maybe, feeds. Maybe it, it's possible. Uh, can't, can't prove it. Um, so here's my second question. Why don't you believe the earth is flat? Ooh, um, well, I guess it, it feels like uh, common sense to me. Um, I've taken a lot of geology classes uh, at this point because that's my major. And um, we usually sort of operate using the assumption that the earth is, is round. So. So, you, so you believe the lie then, the conspiracy that the earth is round. <laughs> I mean, yes, all I've, I've I bought see- it. All I see from my social media friends and from uh, YouTube and uh, my Google ads is that the earth is flat. The flat earth. Is that right? um, All the proof that NASA is lying. And it's just super obvious to me that the earth is flat. That's funny. uh, I don't think I've ever gotten any ads about how flat the earth is. Or I I, know a lot of my. No, I don't think I've ever gotten an ad about that. We we must be uh, targeted by different organizations. So uh, on your YouTube feed, you don't have a bunch of recommended videos about flat earth? No. In fact, I get a lot of like, 
flat earth debunking videos in my feed. Oh man. Yeah. Well, I think we are, uh, we are victims of a new uh, digital society here that uh, really shapes a lot of what we see and how we interact. And that's, that was actually the, the, the concept that we studied in class this week was how um, the digital world influences society and how people interact and how we see the world and, and really even mm. sociology, how we understand uh, society. And uh, we, we watched uh, some films and we uh, did some readings and we talked a lot about how, you know, um, digital is intertwined with us now. We can't separate the digital world from our analog world because it's so much a part of our everyday life. Mm. Uh, we even did a, a little screen test and uh, I forgot to tell you we were going to do this, but you don't have to do it if you don't want to, Jacob, but on your phone, do you have a little like screen time? A screen time? Oh, I think I do. Uh, let me pull it up. Yeah. So I, I challenged them and I said, listen, I, now I had it turned off because of privacy concerns, but I said, I'll turn this on for a couple of days. And when I come back to class, I'll tell you what my average screen time was over uh -huh. the last couple of days. And, and you tell me yours. And uh, I gave them the option. They could either tell me what their screen time was, or if they could tell me two names of fellow students in the class, because I'm trying to encourage community. They almost all chose screen time. <laughs> <laughs> so I will tell you right now that over two days, my average screen time was, drum roll, two hours and 20 minutes. Wow. It's embarrassing. Are you willing to share, Jacob Hall, student? Yeah, I, um, I'm not seeing an average here. So I'll give you the last few days worth of, uh, worth of data. Um, so I got two hours, three hours uh, this past Friday. Um, three hours, three and a half hours one day. Ooh, Sunday I had four hours of screen on time. Um, you were actually pretty average, um, you know, compared to my, my small sample of class. I think the highest we had was five hours, but most people were in that three to four hours. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason we talk about that is because it's very obvious that we're all spending time looking into a screen, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's for school or, or work or entertainment. Um, but that is key to understanding why we have the same internet, but oftentimes we might have radically different beliefs. So you would think, hey, we are looking at the same stuff on the internet. We, have, we can draw on the same facts, make the same conclusions. And you know that is not the case because you're not a flat earther. Uh, and neither am I, you know, to be, to be honest. So <laughs> why is that the case? Well, uh, one thing we did to understand this is we looked at a film uh, we watched a film called The Social Dilemma, and this film was released exclusively on Netflix and broke all kinds of records for how many people watched it. And it made a huge splash because the film is highly critical of uh, social media companies mm. uh, and big tech in general. So I thought we'd listen to a few minutes of the trailer. So uh, let's take a listen. Let's do it. When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident, that's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. 
I was the co-inventor of the Facebook like button. I was the president of Pinterest. Google. Twitter. Instagram. There were meaningful changes happening around the world because of these platforms. I think we were naive about the flip side of that coin. We get rewarded by parts, likes, thumbs up, and we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. A whole generation is more anxious, more depressed. I always felt like fundamentally it was a force for good. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Facebook discovered that they were able to affect real-world behavior and emotions without ever triggering the user's awareness. They are completely clueless. So that is the film. Have you seen the film, Jacob? I have not yet, but a friend just recommended it to me. So it's, it's on my list. Yeah. How's it sound? It sounds interesting. I already have a lot of opinions about social media and the goods and bads of using it. So I'm excited to, um, to see if it expands my perspective a little bit. Yeah, I highly recommend it. And uh, it, you will either come away terrified or empowered. <laughs> um, I tend to be a little more on the terrified side, but um, uh -huh. this helped us understand uh, what is behind a lot of the technology we use, you know, ostensibly for free. So I thought I'd give you uh, kind of three key ideas from class this week and see what you think. And then as always, we'll give a couple of applications that uh, our legion of listeners can go and, and, and apply to their own lives. How's that sound? Sounds great. Let's hear them. All right. So the first thing I think you should know is that, and I mentioned this already, society is intertwined with digital. It's not another aspect of life. It is our life. Right. Now, of course, there's exceptions, but for most people, um, they're interacting with digital every day. So we need to seek to understand it with appropriate methods. Um, we call that class digital sociology, but the idea is uh, we are creating and seeking new knowledge uh, in different ways than we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, so where we get our data, how we interpret it, uh, what it means to connect with someone. Uh, all these things are part of our society now. And so we need to look at society through that lens. Uh, so it's not enough to say, for example, you know, if I interview someone for a study and, and uh, it's about uh, their behaviors, there's probably going to be questions about digital use, you know, um, because it's embedded. So that one's pretty easy. That's not too controversial, right? Yeah, I can get behind okay. that. Yeah. So now the second one, maybe a little more controversial, and that is this key point. Your data is not necessarily what is of value. Your data is not necessarily for sale for profit. And we hear that a lot. Like, you know, companies are scraping data, they're selling your data, they're stealing data. Now, data is important, but it's not because of the value of the data. It's actually your attention that is for sale. Hmm. And we call this the attention economy. So most social media apps, they are not looking to get a bunch of data from you and sell it to advertisers. Um, there might be some of that, but they are looking to keep your attention for as long as possible. And your attention is what is for sale, not your data. Hmm. So what do you think of that? Well, that's a pretty big idea. Um, I think that I agree with that idea that um, social media companies and online internet companies are, are worried more about our attention per se than like the data that they might collect about us. Um, 
I think that it's a really important metric for our interest in anything. If something is appearing on our screen and we keep it there for a while, it's a pretty good sign to, you know, my Instagram app or whatever it is that I'm looking at, that that's something I might want to see again, or that they should give me more content of that type. Um, I think that applies to advertising as well as things that like, like news or, um, you know, friends that I'd like to keep up with. It, it's a really easy way for them to see what I'm into and also hone what I'm, uh, what, what they're going to show me next. Exactly. So this idea of if they got your attention, then they can, uh, with more of a guarantee, kind of focus what ads you see, what experiences you have. Right. And so one uh, computer scientist put it this way. It's, it's easy to understand that your attention is for sale, but it's actually more nuanced than that. It's the tiny, imperceptible, slight changes of behavior that result from your attention um, mm. that is happening. So if, if, if they can get you to um, maybe think about buying a different kind of toothpaste or, <laughs> you know, stop at a, at a coffee shop that you're walking by and you happen to get an alert that you're, you have a coupon there or something like that. So little changes in behavior of where you spend your time is powerful. And uh, that's a big important concept because of point number three, which is this idea of persuasive technology. Mm. Persuasive technology is technology designed to make you do something. It's technology designed to change your behavior. And there's a lot of ways this happens, but some uh, obvious ones that we've all experienced um, in terms of holding your attention. How about the content rabbit hole? So you're scrolling your YouTube uh, app and there's random videos that you've never watched before being suggested to you. So you click on one that looks interesting and then there's another scroll of videos. So you click on another one that's interesting. And eventually you are going to be so far down the rabbit hole that you're viewing things that you never thought you'd be interested in. Has that Mm -hmm. ever happened to you on YouTube or anything like that? Oh, all the time. And sometimes I'm really enjoying it to see where it'll take me, what the algorithm might recommend next. But I, um, I absolutely agree that that is a persuasive technology. Yes, the algorithm, uh, the algorithm. Um, you hear a lot about that. Um, and algorithms are basically just, you know, opinions uh, based on your behavior, mm-hmm. you know? So um, that content rabbit hole of going down and, and just spending more and more time clicking down through, um, that's, that's persuasive technology. Here's another one. How about this? Notifications. Mm. Notifications are persuasive technology. So you're sitting there having a conversation. All of a sudden you get a text alert, either the ding or the little alert on your phone. Yep. And I don't know about you, but when that happens to me, it's like, I got to check it. I got to see who it is. Absolutely. I think your generation is a little better than my generation with this. (laughs) uh, You can turn it off a little easier and, and ignore it. Right. Um, but I know for my generation, so I'm like an old millennial. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to check that alert, man. Like, we I know understand. it's not going to be, we know it's not going to be that important. It's probably going to be like, you know, my mom sharing a picture of her lunch. Uh-huh. But I got to check it. 
That's interesting because like notifications, especially on my phone is something that I keep very close tabs on personally. And I I've gone through my notification settings really, really critically and turned off everything that I don't think I'd want to see. So when I get a notification these days, it's something that I know that I need to pay attention to maybe a text from a close friend or uh, something along those lines. I've also, um, customize the notification sounds. I've actually used bird calls. If you ever see me in person and my phone is accidentally turned, the ringer's turned on, you're going to hear all these different bird calls from my different apps. So I text my girlfriend via WhatsApp. So if I get a WhatsApp notification, there's like a sparrow call or something along those lines. Um, That's sort of how I can differentiate between the notifications that I get without like having to look at my phone. Yep. That is, you are ahead of the game. I would say you're remarkably digitally fluent. (laughs) <laughs> thanks producer adam Paul, producer extraordinary yeah so, so that's actually <laughs> one of the things we'll talk about in a minute is is some some ways you can kind of like fight back against persuasive technology uh-huh you know, didn't mean to jump the gun yeah yeah no no that's that's a really good one like notifications that's you know another one is like uh um uh if i if you know if i text you uh especially on whatsapp but i think it happens on messenger too um and you're typing back i get the little ellipse the oh bubbles. yep yep so what am I going to do? I'm going to hold on to that because I want to see what you said. Yeah, um, of course. That's a design feature. That's not just like them being polite and saying, hey, just so you know, Jacob's texting you back. That's a design feature. So these are all persuasive technologies. Another one is the uh, media bubble. Uh-huh. Uh, the idea that um, you know, the more you Google certain things or watch videos on certain topics or like uh, social media posts on certain topics, uh, the more you form a bubble of topics interesting to you. And so that's what you see. Yeah. And that's why, this is why some people are so convinced that the earth is flat because they see all, there's so much evidence online. Well, that's because that evidence is being put there by the algorithm to hold their attention. Right. So the media bubble is something you really got to fight against, um, you know, in terms of, of how you do your searches and, and, and who your friends are and that kind of thing. Right. It's interesting to me because, if I imagine myself, you know, in a Facebook board meeting and we're trying to decide what to recommend our users, like it does make sense that we might want to recommend things that they already like, you know, like, well, what, what do they want to see? They probably want to see things related to what their friends are looking at, what they've liked in the past. It, it does to me feel like it started from good intentions, right? Like they're, there were social media companies trying to figure out what to recommend or show people on their screens. And they started from a very good place. And it's, it's come to this point where it's dictating how we think about the world. And that's what's getting scary to me is it, it's a little bit more than a recommendation. It feels, it feels like it's sort of guiding my life more than I would, I would like it to, if that makes sense. Yes, you're exactly right. It is. It can be a little scary. And uh, for example, in, in the film, and I encourage everyone to watch it, um, most of the people that are interviewed are former big tech um, officials or, or you know, people that are working in that industry that, that are pretty uh-huh. high up, like the guy who invented the like button is Ooh. in the film. And all these people are former tech executives for a reason. And basically they said what you just said. We started from good intentions. It got out of hand. Yeah. And May I go on so a quick we, tangent, if that's okay? Yeah, 
So Andrew the Lake. Facebook like button, you might already be aware of this, but I, I really like our viewers to hear this, um, is particularly scary because if you go to any website that has the like button on it, say you log on to, I don't know, npr.org or whatever, some news site that lets you like that article, that little blue button that you see on your screen is directly from Facebook. And by requesting that button, your computer asks Facebook for that little icon. Facebook remembers that you were on that website. So Facebook knows where you are on the internet, even if you're not going to facebook.com because that like button was, was displayed on your screen. And yes. so if you wanted to actually remove Facebook from knowing what you do online, you have to block Facebook's like buttons on other websites, which takes a lot of technical savvy. A lot of people don't know how to do that. Yeah, and that's, uh, and that's one of the many reasons I think Facebook was kind of the most panned in the film. Yeah, I bet. Um, and <laughs> yeah. They, they did release, you know, to be fair, they did release a statement saying, here's what the film got wrong. Here's uh -huh. our response. And so people can go check that out. Uh, but that little button is a great example of how media bubbles can form and whether we know it or not. Yeah. And so um, the way I want people to, to think about this is, hey, there's hope here. Um, you can control your attention. Your, the attention is yours. And the reason we call it the attention economy mm -hmm. is because it's a scarce resource. You only have so much attention. Right. So the question is, who controls where you put your attention? And I would like people to control their own attention. And so imagine a continuum, you know, you got a line going in both directions and, on, and, and that continuum represents how much control you have over your attention. On uh -huh. one side is complete agency. Like you control everything. You are not ceding your attention to any um, app, uh, to anything that you don't want to see. Now that's really hard to get to. You'd have to be almost completely non-digital uh, to get there. Uh -huh. um, but that would, that's one way to look at it. It's like, I'm going to control it all. That takes practice. Like, and you just said, that takes savvy. That takes intentionality like you did with your notifications. Now, the other side of the continuum is if you're not flexing that agency muscle, it'll turn into atrophy. And so atrophy is where we don't want to be, where we are just letting the attention economy take all of our resource and control it completely. And so we have agency versus atrophy. And I want to talk about some ways that you can push against that atrophy and get us back towards attention agency. So I got three tips to give you and our listeners about uh, the attention economy and how to get your agency back. Let's dive in. All right. So tip number one, um, stay in the now. Stay in the now. Now, you mentioned you're already doing this with your notifications. Uh, most folks in the digital fluency space will say, turn off your notifications. Just turn them off. Yeah. Or only allow very specific notifications uh, at specific times. So Great. this takes you diving into your settings. Uh, there's actually apps that will manage notifications for you um, mm -hmm. because it is kind of complex. But do whatever you can to stay in the now, whether that's going into airplane mode, turning off notifications, silencing your phone, silencing your watch, whatever you can do to stay in the now. Yes. Because if you can block off time where you are not in the digital, 
that's probably good. That's going to help you. So that's tip number one. Stay in the now. What do you I think? I would encourage our listeners to really dive into either on iOS or Android. They've added a lot of features recently about controlling your notifications. For example, on my Android phone, I can suppress all notifications during my class times. So I have all my classes in my calendar. My phone knows when I'm in class. I've, I've given it that information. And in return, it suppresses all of my notifications during those times. So it's something to think about if you're looking to um, manage your notifications more, more discreetly. Love it. Yeah, great tip. So tip number two to fight back and own your own attention is to purposefully expand your media bubble. Mm. All right. So to go beyond your own views, go beyond what is suggested for you. Some folks even say, don't click on anything that's suggested for you. Mm. So if you're in YouTube and suggested videos come up in your scroll, don't click on those. Be intentional. Search for what you want to see. Yeah. Um, or another way to do it is um, friend people that you disagree with, which is absolutely maddening, especially like on <laughs> But it helps you you know, be prevented from getting into these media bubbles. Now I heard you call this something similar, a media filter. Is, is, it, is it the same idea? Uh, a filter bubble is, filter is the bubble. term I've heard. And it's, it's um, used often like uh, when it comes to Google. So Google is filtering your search results when you type a query into the search bar. And those filters are different per person, right? When I type yeah. in a filter or sorry, a search query, Google's going to look for things related to my status as a student, the things that I might've seen before on Google, um, the fact that I live in Williamsburg, Virginia, all of those things are accounted for when it filters. And those are, as you might imagine, much different than say an elderly person in Brazil, right? They might be getting much different results because they are from a different place. It's not just a language difference where Google's looking for different language um, articles. They're also looking for, for things that I might be interested in based on my other demographics. Nice, yeah. So similar to the media bubble, but even more intentional uh, yeah. to go beyond that filter. So using um, uh, some things that don't track uh, your histories, like maybe DuckDuckGo or Quant, yep. um, you know, maybe not relying on Google, which is hard to do. So uh, I would recommend DuckDuckGo. It's surprisingly good. Yeah, it is. And it, when it uses uh, some of Google's um, technology, I think, but it doesn't remember stuff. Right. Um, yes. So yeah, so expand your media bubble. And uh, tip number three to fight back and uh, get more agency over your own attention is to implement boundaries on social media use. Mm. Now, I try not to use social media at all, but I think it's reasonable to use social media, but you put boundaries on it. And the phrase that I love is the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. Mm. Right? Yeah. The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So if you uh, are afraid to use social media because you're going to end up spending two hours instead of 20 minutes, well, you implement boundaries and you say, you know, for the next hour, I'm not going to use social media because that's wasted time. But then right. the 20 minutes after that, I will waste that time. I'll plan to scroll. And so um, you, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. You just put boundaries on it. And you plan for that time. Something I would encourage um, our listeners to do as well is think about why they're using social media. I have a lot of friends who've talked about like feeling really toxic after using Instagram because they are feeling like it's not really a productive thing for them to look at. 
from my perspective, Instagram's great because I love catching up with old friends. I get to see what they're up to. There's a lot of people I'm really only in touch with on Instagram. So mm -hmm. to me, it feels like productive time when I'm controlling it and doing it just every once in a while. Um, but you know, if, if, if some platform isn't doing it for you, like stop using it, right? Like there's so many other things on the internet. I promise you that you can find something more productive to do in that time that you create for yourself. Yeah, exactly. I, I love that idea because as we were talking before the show, there's lots of other networks and, and aspects of media that might be more interesting and useful. Absolutely. So don't be trapped by that is, right. is another way to put it. So I think with you know, understanding the idea of the attention economy and persuasive technology is, is step number one. Having these quick tips to start thinking about, you know, staying in the now, expanding your media bubble and implementing boundaries uh, puts you in control. It gives you some, some power uh, and then it takes some practice. So um, part of being digitally fluent is working at this. So I hope that these tips have been helpful for you and for those listening. And uh, we'll be back next week with a little bit more on this. Uh, and in the meantime, be careful, what, be careful what you search for, Jacob. I will. <laughs> Thanks for your time. We'll see you next time. Right, take care, Adam.